0: Sponsor ad. Would you like to listen to audiobooks? Listen to the world's best-selling audiobooks from our more than 10,000 audiobooks for free. Also, you can benefit from these excellent and informative podcasts for free. Get the helpful links in the description. Please support us. Thank you. It took me a long time to understand why there's religious injunctions supporting humility. To even understand what the word really meant in that sort of technical sense and it means something like this it means what you don't know is more important than what you know then then what you don't know can start to be your friend you see people are very defensive about what they know and for the reasons we've already discussed but the thing is you don't know enough and the re- you can tell you don't know enough because your life is not what it could be and neither is the life of the people around you you just don't know enough and so what that means is that every time you encounter some evidence that you're ignorant someone points it out you should be happy about that because you think oh you just told me how i'm wrong it's like great like maybe i had to sift through a lot of nonsense to get through the real message that you're telling me but if you could actually tell me some way that i'm wrong and then maybe give me a hint about how to not be wrong like that well then i wouldn't have to be wrong like that anymore that that would be a good thing and and you can embark on that adventure by listening to people and if you listen to people they will tell you They'll tell you amazing things if you listen to them, and many of those things are little tools that you can put in your toolkit, like Batman, and then you can go out into the world and use those tools, and you don't have to fall blindly into a pit quite as often. And so the humility element is, well, do you want to be right, or do you want to be learning? And, And it's deeper than that. It's, do you want to be the tyrannical king who's already got everything figured out? Or do you want to be the continually transforming hero, or fool for that matter, who's getting better all the time? And that's actually a choice, you know. It's a deep choice. And it's better to be the self-transforming fool who's humble enough to make friends with what he or she doesn't know, and to listen when people talk. And listening is a transformative exercise. Like if, if you listen to the people in your life, for example, if you actually listen to them, they'll tell you what's wrong with them and how to fix it and what they want. They can't even help it if you start listening, because people are so shocked if you actually listen to them that they tell you all those sorts of things that they might not have even intended to, things they don't even know. And then you can, you can work with that. And the other thing that's so interesting, you know, now and then you have a meaningful conversation, right? You, you have a good conversation with somebody, you walk away and you think, geez, you know what, we really connected, and I know more than I did when I came away from that conversation. And during the conversation, you're really engrossed in it. And that, that feeling of being engrossed is a feeling of meaning. And the feeling of meaning is engendered because you're having a transformative conversation. So your brain produces that feeling of meaning for you. It. it says, oh yeah, this is exactly where you should be right here and now. It's, it's the right place and time for you. And that's a great place to occupy, and so a good conversation where people are listening has exactly that nature, and the reason it has that nature is because it is in fact transformative. It's one of the truisms of of clinical psychology, like if you're a clinical psychologist, a huge part of what you do is just listen to people. It's like, you know, they come in, they're unhappy, and they'd rather not be, something like that. You say, well, why do you think you might be unhappy? And they don't know they have some ideas and they may have to ramble around for like a year before they figure out why they're unhappy they get rid of a bunch of reasons why they thought they were unhappy that are untrue and then you kind of get to the heart of the problem and then you might ask them well if you could have what you wanted so that your life would be okay what would that look like then they have to ramble around a bunch about that because they don't really know but the listening will straighten them out because people think by talking and in order to think You have to have someone to listen, because it's very hard to think. Hardly anyone can think. And even the people who can think can only think about a limited number of things. I know you stated in the last lecture that the importance for setting aims in life and um, to kind of have goals to uh, work towards, right? So my question was, how do you do that if you don't know where you want to go? Because that's kind of where I got stuck on your your future authoring program, because... Okay, that's, that's a good question. That's a really good question. This notion in the Old Testament that morality is following a sequence of prohibitions. There's a bunch of bad things you shouldn't do, and then basically you're good enough. And I think there's wisdom in that. I, I think that's kind of where children start, right? You, I mean, I love children and all that, but they're, they're, they're crazy little creatures and they need to be, you know, s- civilized. And well, Partly what you do is you, you lay prohibitions on them. And, Mostly what you're trying to do is lay prohibitions on them for the behaviors that if they manifested would make their life miserable This is why this thing that I've said to people has become this crazy internet meme, but that's to clean up your room and, <laughs> which, which is a lot better and more useful than people think, it's a lot harder too but the, the, thing, the first thing you do, I think, and I learned this in part from Solzhenitsyn when he was trying to iron out his soul when he was in the gulag because he was trying to figure out how he got there, how he contributed to how he got there you know, not Stalin and Hitler, even though they were kind of to blame, you know, but there wasn't much he could do about that. I think what you have to do, and and this is part of humility, is you have to look around you within your sphere of influence, like the direct sphere of influence, and fix the things that announce themselves as in need of repair. And those are often small things, you know, and, and they can be like your room, put it in order, because the thing is. It isn't exactly so important that your room is in order although it is. What's important is that you learn how to distinguish between chaos and order and to be able to act in a manner that produces order. I think you can you can do something as simple as just sit on your bed and think, "Okay, there's probably like 5 things I could do today so that tomorrow morning is slightly better than this morning was, at least or at least I'm not falling behind." And those will usually be It's like having to eat a toad in the morning, right? It's like it's not going to be something you want to do. There'll be things you're trying to avoid. They're snakes, essentially. But if you ask yourself, like you're asking someone, which I think is a form of prayer. If you ask yourself instead of telling yourself, you know, what is it that I could do to set things more right today that I would actually do? It's usually some small thing because you're not that disciplined, you know, then you can go do it. And then you, you put the world together a little more when you do that, and that spreads out. You also construct yourself into something that's better able to call order forth from chaos. And that makes you just incrementally stronger. And then the next day, you can maybe take on a slightly larger task. And like you get the benefit of compound interest if you do that. It's a tremendously powerful technique. And I think if you do that at some point, Instead of just having to fix things up that are not good, you'll start to get a glimmer of the positive things that you could do, the positive things that you could do that would actually constitute a vision. And that's what I would recommend. You're actually tougher than you think. You never knew that. And maybe you didn't want to take on the responsibility because, you know, people play a role in their own demise, so to speak. When you had opportunity to go out and explore or withdraw because you were afraid, you chose to withdraw because you were afraid. So it's not only that you were overprotected often, it's that you were willing to take advantage of the fact that you were overprotected and run back there whenever you had the opportunity. You know, so maybe you're a kid in the playground, right? And you're having some trouble with other kids. And you know, in the back of your mind, I should deal this with, deal with this myself. But you go and tell your mom and get her to intervene. And you know that that's not right. You know that you're breaking the social contract, but it's easier. And so that's what you do. You run off to an authority figure and hide behind the great father, roughly speaking. Well, the problem with that is you don't learn how to do it yourself. So then you have to relearn it painfully when you're 40. So then you take people out. You say, well, what are you afraid of? Rank it from one to ten. We'll make a list of ten things you're afraid of. The least the thing you're least afraid of, we'll call number ten. So we'll start with that. OK, well, I'm afraid of elevators. OK, well, let's let's look at a picture of an elevator. Let's have you imagine being in an elevator. Let's go out to an elevator and let you watch the terrible jaws of death open because that's how you're responding to it symbolically. Right. And you're going to do that at, it, at the, the closest proximity you can manage you find out you go do that it works you're nervous as hell especially from an anticipatory perspective shaking you go out you stop you watch it happen and you actually calm down you do that 10 times and it no longer bothers you Well, what you've learned that you didn't die but more importantly than that you've learned that you could withstand the threat of death that's what you've learned and then you move a little closer and then you move a little closer and then you move a little closer and finally you're back in what's no longer the elevator from a symbolic perspective it's a tomb right it's it's a place of enclosure and isolation and you learn hmm turns out i can withstand that and then you're met much more together much more confident and that's often one of the things that often happens in situations like that i've seen this multiple times is that if you run someone through an exposure training process like that and, and toughen them up, a man of renown, but he was old, but he was also willfully blind. And it was the combination of his age and his willful blindness that allowed Seth to chop him up into pieces and and depose him. And so that well that's fair enough. It's brilliant, right? It's like, why do states fall apart? Because the structures get old and no one's taking care of them. And people have their eyes closed. And so it's the same situation. It's the same situation in the flood myths. It's like, well, yeah, things fall apart and they're going to flood. But if you were awake enough and you were on top of it, then you could continually stave that off and actually partly what you're doing because you're alive is staving off entropy, like you're an anti-entropic process. It's a really good definition of life. There's a great physicist named Erwin Schrodinger who wrote a book called What is Life, and that's the fundamental thesis of the book. You're always trying to stave off entropy. What's the best way to stave off entropy? Decay, chaos, keep your eyes open. That's the rule. Shut your eyes, especially to things you know you should see. The flood comes. And that's the evil of man that's laid out in this story, because that's the worst sort of perhaps it's not the worst. It's one of the primary sins, so to speak, that will bring about the flood. We already talked about the other things that characterized Cain's attitude. So God's upset because he made man on Earth and it grieved him at his heart. And God says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. I repent that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so now that's an interesting thing. So here what we have is the question is, the whole world's in chaos at this point, right? In this point in the story. And the chaos is of multiple sorts. It's it arose from the fall, it arose from the emergence of self-consciousness it emerged, say, arose from the sins of of Cain, like things are not going well. It's multiple levels of collapse. I said with Bill C-16 that I wouldn't speak the language of the radical leftists because I don't think that that language should define the game. But let's say it does. So here's the game. The world is a battleground of groups and they're battling for power. That's it, that's the game. And some of them win and they oppress those who don't win. So that's how we're gonna view the world. Okay. Now the leftists say, "Okay, well here's the oppressed people, the oppressors, the patriarchy, patriarchal types. They should be ashamed of themselves and give up some power." The right wingers, the radical right wingers, look at that and they say, "Oh, I see. So the game is ethnic identity, is it? It's identity politics." Okay, we're white males. We're not going to lose. That's the right wing version of identity politics. It's like, "Screw you!" If we're going to divide into groups, if we're going to divide into tribes. and I'm in my tribe, I'm not going to get all guilty and lose. I'm going to get all cruel and win. And that's like, then you think, well, there's people in the middle. They're kind of looking back and forth. Which side of the identity politics spectrum am I going to fall in? Do I want to be driven primarily by compassion? And am I going to accept guilt for my historical privilege? So that's one possibility. And then I'm the oppressor. I'm the member of the oppressor group. Or am I going to say, no, to hell with that. I'm just going to play to win. Well, then I'm going to go to the right. It's like, well, my sense is, how about we don't play either of those games? And the reason we shouldn't play them is, well, the Soviets played the left-wing game and, like, killed who knows how many tens of millions of people. You can't even count it accurately. The estimates range from 20 to 100 million. Those are pretty big error bars. And the the Maoists maybe a 100 million. Certainly 60 million. So, okay, that didn't work out so well. And then there's the Nazis. Like, they played ethnic identity politics and racial superiority. It's like what do we, we want to play that game see what i've been trying to do really what i've been trying to do for the last 30 years is say look there's heavy temptations to play those sorts of games but that's not the only game in town it's a much better game to play individual it's like get your act together stand up in the world make something of yourself stay away from the ideological oversimplifications set your house in order that's rule six in the in, the, in this book. So I have a book rule in there, says set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. And it's a very dark chapter about the motivations of the Columbine high school killers and this other guy named Carl Panzram who was a serial rapist and arsonist and murderer. And these he wrote an autobiography and the Columbine kids also wrote about why they did what they did. They're resentful to the core, bitter, bitter, resentful, terrible. And well, I'm suggesting that people stay away from that resentfulness and bitterness, even though life is hard and there's malevolence in the world. It's like, yeah, you can you can tell a story where everyone's a victim, because we all die, we all get sick, you know? And things happen to us that are bitter and terrible, betrayal, deceit, lies, like people hurt us on purpose, you know, so it's not just the tragedy of life. It's malevolence as well, It's everyone's a victim. You can tell that story. The problem is if you tell that story and you start to act it out, you make all of that worse. That's the problem. And it's so, this is why partly I got attracted to Christian imagery at least in part because there's an idea in Christianity that you should pick up your goddamn cross and like walk up the hill Dramatically that's correct That's the right answer. It's like you've got a heavy load of suffering to bear and a fair bit of it's going to be unjust So what are you going to do about it? Accept it voluntarily and try to transform as a consequence That's the right answer. It's the right answer because the rest of it is tribalism and we're we're too technologically powerful to get all tribal again. Sponsor ad. Would you like to listen to audiobooks? Listen to the world's best-selling audiobooks from our more than 10,000 audiobooks for free. Also, you can benefit from these excellent and informative podcasts for free. Get the helpful links in the description. Please support us. Thank you.